Pray with me. Father, as the deer pants for the water brook, so do our souls pant after you in a dry and a thirsty land. So we ask you today, Father God, to fill our cups and let them overflow with love. Remind us of your purpose and of your plan for our lives. Teach us to live victorious lives through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Nowhere in Paul's writings, in all of the New Testament, do we find a more concise collection of moral or of ethical commands than we find here in verses 9 to 21 of Romans chapter 12, where Paul lays out at least 13 encouragements ranging from love of Christians to hospitality to strangers. And each of these 13 encouragements could stand alone as a sermon all by itself to help us flesh out what effective Christian living should look like. Effective Christian living. Paul begins in verse nine with the greatest commandment. The commandment to love from a pure heart. Or as he says it, love must be free of hypocrisy. To say it more positively, love must be genuine. Love must be sincere, not faked and not false. John Calvin commented that it is difficult to express how creative people can be in counterfeiting a love which they do not really possess. How creative we can be to counterfeit a love that we do not really possess. Paul says love must be sincere, love must be genuine. I was facilitating a church growth conference at a place where I used to work and the speaker was admonishing the pastors there about how important it is that visitors to their churches feel loved as soon as they come through the church doors. And he described in some great detail how the ushers were trained to express love to every new face that came through the church doors. This was their method, methodology for church growth. And here are a few of the usher rules to show love. First he said, thou shalt be friendly. Thou shalt communicate kindness. Guests are to be greeted with a firm handshake and open posture and don't forget to smile. Thou shalt invite guests to something significant going on in the church. Thou shalt help with the children. Thou shalt not be culturally insensitive, whatever that means. And the list went on and on and on as he taught them how to grow their churches. And there is absolutely nothing wrong at all with this list of rules except for the fact 
that this programmatic kind of love is not genuine. Its motive is to generate second visits and hopefully lead to membership. But Paul says that our love is not to be inundated with ulterior motives. In other words, we ought to love for love's sake. Not to grow a church, not to get a friend, not to prove how compassionate or generous we can be, but we ought to love for love's sake. Let your love be sincere. It's a question of motive. And this question of motive leads to a much larger question, a more philosophical question, a question that really we can't answer exhaustively. But it's always worth considering and asking this question. The question is, what is the purpose of love? Have you ever thought about that? I'm not talking about what is the function of love, what does love look like, what does love do? I'm asking what is the purpose of love? Love, as Paul uses in the text today, means to have concern for another person, agape, to regard with affection, and in its simplest terms, that's what love is, to regard another with affection. But what is the purpose of love? The simple answer is we are to love because God commands us to love, but, but why? In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, John writes this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love, love. Sincere, genuine love is the highest expression of God in the world. So that to love my neighbor is to give God to my neighbor. To show love to others is to reveal God to others. To love, therefore, is to speak in the stead of God. To say to my neighbor that God is on your side to heal you, to nourish you, to bless you. Love is the essence even of evangelism. Love is the glue that holds all things together. The supreme commodity, the highest form of our existence, love. And this love must not be tainted with the scourge of selfishness. It must be freely given expecting nothing in return. Let your love be free of hypocrisy or of ulterior motives. If you ask me how I am doing today and I tell you all of my troubles and all of my problems and you commit to pray for me, then pray for me. Don't, don't traffic in gossip. Don't traffic in innuendo against me. Don't come into my life and get to know me and all of my problems in order to use my weaknesses against me or to make yourself look good. Don't take advantage of me for your own personal gain or for your own personal interest. Love must be without hypocrisy. Love sincerely because anything short of sincere love 
is not love at all. Paul continues here. Detest what is evil. And since Paul is speaking in the context of human relationships, we know that he's not talking about evil in general. He's not saying detest evil in general. Paul is saying detest what is evil as it manifests itself in the person that you love. Detest what is evil in any person. Cling to what is good in any person. Let's say it more plainly than that. Detest what is evil in any person, but don't focus on what is evil, what is wrong with that person. Don't focus on what is bad about that person. Do not identify the person with his sinfulness or with his wickedness. Do not treat the sinner as though she herself is the sin. No, she is a person made in the image of God. Her sin, her evil is what is to be detested. Of course, there are people who identify so closely with their sin that they believe a rejection of their sinfulness is a rejection of themselves. And while we should be mindful of their feelings, we know the truth. And the truth is that sin is an irregularity in the human. Sin is an anomaly that has infiltrated humanity. Sin is a condition. It is not an essential aspect of humanity. Sin is unnecessary. Though the saint or the sinner may not be able to imagine life without his or her sin, there is life and there is abundant life beyond his addictions, beyond his proclivities, and beyond his worthless habits. And we understand this truth. And because we understand it, we're able to dissect the person from their sin and to love the person while rejecting and detesting their evil ways. We detest what is evil in any person, but because of love, we place greater emphasis on what is good from a biblical perspective about that person. And by love, as the Bible says, by our love we're able to overlook or to cover the multitude of their faults. When we think of one another, we should think mostly of what is good about each other instead of focusing primarily on what is wrong. And when we all love each other genuinely, we create a God-filled and a flourishing environment where each of us can grow to maturity in Christ Jesus at our own pace without fear of personal rejection, without fear of shame, we can allow our truest selves to come to the surface. We can find healing and rest for our souls. If there is one place, brothers and sisters, where every human should be able to find rest, it should be in the assembly of the children of God. If there is any place in this world where any person should be able to find rest, it is among the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. But we often talk about it in our churches, how most of the people in the church wear masks. Everybody has a mask on. And we say you have to take the mask off and you have to be free and you have to be who you are. Take your mask off. 
Well, there's a reason why most people in church wear a mask. Because people can be dangerous. Even Christians can be dangerous. Even Christians can be very harsh. Very often people in churches wear masks because they're afraid they're going to be injured. What Paul is saying here is that we should foster such an environment that there is no fear of being injured here. That you can take off your mask, that you can rest. Hmm. And Paul instructs us that we should be devoted to one another in brotherly love. In other words, we should spend a generous portion of our time and of our resources on one another. And ideally, this is how siblings should love one another. Brotherly or sisterly love stands with the one loved through good times and through bad times. Brotherly or sisterly love is allegiant and loyal and faithful. Paul says that we ought to be faithful to one another. There is a strong sense of fidelity among siblings that is hard to replace. There is a sense of duty to protect and to defend and to support one another. And there are not many things in this world that fosters a greater sense of stability than knowing that your siblings, your brothers and your sisters have your back no matter what comes and no matter what goes. Brotherly love. Brotherly love, Paul says here, is an indispensable quality that must be present if we are to grow in grace together. Paul goes on here to say that we should give preference to one another in honor. That we should be more concerned about one another's promotion, one another's advancements than we are about our own. That I should place your best interests ahead of my own interests. That I should not be, I should not become competitive against my brothers and my sisters in Christ. But we live in a very competitive culture. By its very nature, capitalism fosters and promotes competition. And while this competitive culture does generate the best innovations, we have to give it credit for that. The competitive culture also creates a certain kind of loneliness that permeates our culture, that even permeates the church of Jesus Christ. A mild paranoia that someone else is out to overshadow me, someone else is out to outshine me. Competitiveness. This characteristic is palpable in our world today and even in our churches. The need to be right at all costs. The need to be at the head of the table. The need to have one's way all the time. The need to appear smarter and sharper and better and wiser than anyone else. Paul says that instead of adopting this self-promoting attitude with each other, we should be more focused on seeing our brothers and our sisters gain victory. We should live and we should strive to see my brother and my sister win. Hmm. But as Paul clarifies, this doesn't mean that we should become passive. He says that we should not lag behind in diligence, verse 11. We should not lag behind in diligence. Or as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, 
Solomon says, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. If you have decided on a good course, then commit to that course and give it everything you have. Do not do anything half-heartedly. Not on your job, not in your family, and not in your church. To be half-hearted is to do something without putting forth any real effort, showing no real interest or enthusiasm. To be half-hearted is to be dispassionate about your work or your service. And when we serve like this in any capacity, we rob ourselves of any sense of accomplishment and we say to God that we are not grateful for the opportunities he has provided. We must be, Paul says, we must be diligent. We must always put forth our best efforts in everything we do. And akin to this, Paul says that we should be fervent in spirit. We should be on fire, Paul says. And we should be on fire about whatever good thing we have decided to do. We should be all in. We should be intense about everything we put our hands to do. But especially, we should be passionate and we should be ambitious serving the Lord. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2 that it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. It is required of stewards that one be found faithful, the King James Version says, faithful. And each of us, brothers and sisters, every child of God is a steward. Each of us is an overseer of the gifts, the strengths, and the opportunities that God has provided us. Both your talent and my talent are gifts from God. They belong to God, and God has entrusted certain responsibilities to each of us. And each of us is responsible to govern those gifts appropriately, with due care, with due concern, to use our material and our spiritual resources in such a way that the investment God has delivered in each of us resounds to greater glory of his name in everything that we do. Hmm. Always give it your all. Be fervent in spirit. But sometimes, even when you're on fire, sometimes even when you're diligent, your best efforts are not enough. Sometimes we miss the mark. Sometimes we realize none too soon that we've been laboring in vain, that we've set up our ladder against the wrong building, that we're pursuing something that is simply not God's will for us at this time. Sometimes, even when we're fervent, even when we're diligent, we get it wrong. And this generally occurs because we're either overly ambitious or because we've overestimated our own strengths, our own abilities, or our own responsibilities. But that's okay, sometimes, sometimes you get it wrong. But whenever you find that you have been pursuing something that is not from God, you can still rejoice in hope. That's what Paul says we are to do. Rejoice in hope. We rejoice in hopes that even though we have not been able to accomplish all that we wanted to accomplish, and even though the work we've done is not nearly as fruitful as we would have imagined, 
God is still in control and God is able to bring beauty out of the ashes of my every failed attempt. I rejoice in hope even when I fail. We can rejoice in hope that though we may fall a thousand times, God will deliver us and help us and ultimately we will become all that God envisions us to be. We rejoice in that hope even though we must persevere in tribulation. When the road before us becomes dim and troubles come seemingly from all sides, when friends turn against us, when business fails, when sickness visits us, when we're under siege by our enemies, the children of God are taught to persevere, to keep moving forward. And we keep moving forward putting one faith foot in front of the other. We endure the darkness as we walk toward the light, even when we can't see the light. We are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. And whatever bitter cup presses itself against our lips, we do not resist, but we drink in the pain and we filter our frustrations to God through groanings too deep for words. Or as Paul says it here, we are devoted to prayer. I don't know about you, but some of my best prayer times have been when I was under siege. Some of my most, most quality filled prayer times has been when I was in distress, when everything was on the line. When I felt like I was running out of time, I'd do my best praying, maybe you do too, I'd do my best praying when the chips are down. But there are some of us who have the self-defeating habit of ceasing to pray when trouble comes. We unadvisedly attempt to simply accept the tribulation because we believe there's nothing that can be done. While it's true that you may not be able to do anything about your situation, we know someone who is able. And he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we could ever ask or think according to the power that is at work in each of us. God is able. And so we devote ourselves to prayer, casting our cares on him because he cares for us. We devote ourselves to prayer during the dark days. We take up prayer as our primary duty and we diligently express our hearts to God as we await his deliverance. Hmm. But as the rhythm of life goes, we're not always in bad seasons. I pray that most of your days, I pray that most of our days are spent enjoying the seasons of life, the seasons of ripe abundance in God. I pray that your days are like that. I pray that each of us would experience abundant living. But we don't all experience abundant living at the same time. So Paul admonishes us here that when we have enough and when our cupboards are full, we should not forget those who are less fortunate. He says that we should be, in verse 13, we should be contributing to the needs of the saints. And you already know that the needs of the saints are countless, they're endless. 
Whether spiritual or physical, we should be always ready to invest whatever resources we have into ensuring that each of us has enough. Enough food, enough shelter, enough support, enough good counsel, enough friendship, enough companionship. We should be diligent to ensure that each of us always has enough. And I have to end it right there for today. I had intended to go all the way to verse 18, but I figured I better slow down a little bit to give us a good explanation of all that Paul is saying here. Because in the end, in the final analysis, when he wraps it all up, we will understand why he is advising us in the way that he is. Because Paul wants to foster an environment of peace. A peaceful environment is a healthy environment. And in a, in a healthy environment, we the children of God can grow. It's been a long time since I studied that particular passage of scripture. And as I read it more and more, I could see the kind of person that Paul is envisioning with his admonitions there. The kind of person that Paul is trying to develop. The kind of Christian that Paul sees in the future. We should take these words very seriously. Because what Paul is saying, what Paul has said to us in the first portion of the book of Romans is that God has freely loved us and God has been kind to us. That God has stood with us in the dark days. That God in Jesus Christ has stuck closer to us than any brother. And so now he says to us, you should do the same. Love one another. Welcome the stranger. Look out for the best interests of your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Always seek to honor another more than to honor your own self. Be diligent in your service to God. Be on fire for him. Jesus said, I'd rather you be hot or be cold because if you are lukewarm, if you are half-hearted, I will spew you out of my mouth. Either be on fire or sit on the side. Paul says you should be on fire for God in whatever, not just in evangelism, not just in preaching, not just in teaching, but in all of life, you should be on fire to always give God everything that you have, to leave it, as I say, to leave it all on the field him to empty yourself of all of your own personal ambition all of your own personal drive and accept God's vision for your life and run after his vision for you uh, uh, I feel something with that one. that's what it means to be a victorious Christian and if you follow Paul's guidelines right there I guarantee you that you'll always have the victory. Even when you lose, you'll win. <laughs> I'm not gonna go any, I'm, 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 uh, you guys know what extemporaneous preaching is? It's almost about to happen, but I'm gonna stop it. <laughs> because I feel like working right there. But uh, you'll always win, even when you lose, if you follow Paul's prescription in this text. I'm a living witness, and there are other witnesses right here among us. Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you that you loved us so much that you gave your only begotten son. Thank you for your willingness to sacrifice for us because of your great love for us. Father God, we pray today that you would give us clean hands, that you would give us pure hearts. Allow us to love one another genuinely with brotherly love. Fill us with the fruit of the spirit of your kindness. Make us a generous people so that the world might know that you are with us that you are in us and that we might communicate to one another and to the community around us that they are loved by their maker. In Jesus' name.